Hello, 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 and welcome everybody to the Friday, the 9th of December podcast. It is the second podcast um, from me, Betty Adamu. Um, and I just wanted to say thank you very much um, to everybody that has listened in to the first podcast. I'm really surprised that at the time of recording this now, um, at quarter past five on a Friday, um, that it's had 30 plays, one download and five likes. Um, so I'm very pleasantly surprised by that. If you are one of those people that played the podcast, I'd be delighted to hear from you. Um, just because it's like, I'm just thinking, who are these people? Who are these people that listened to the podcast? I'd be interested to know who you are. Um, so yeah, um, and it's had it's had some good feedback. So I got um, an email saying that the podcast was life, and that there was lots of good tips just in 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 uh, one podcast. So that's really good to know. Um, so let's do a little weekly catch up. Um, how are you all doing? I hope you've all had a really great week. Um, what have I been up to? Well. Um, one thing I want to start with actually is that I went to a quiz night at a pub um, last weekend and I'd never attended a quiz night in my life and um, unsurprisingly being a game designer and being quite into quizzes and games and things like that I found it really interesting but it also highlighted how much general knowledge I don't know so I think I need to somehow get my head out of the market research games and gamification and software space and maybe just watch a bit more TV, uh, just so I can know a bit more about stuff that's going on in the world. Um, but um, anyway, apart from that, uh, that was a really good night. Uh, we came sixth. Our team uh, came sixth out of maybe 15 teams. So not too bad. Uh, a lot better than what I expected. But anyway, um, so what else has been going on? Uh, yeah, I did a talk with New MR. If uh, you don't know who New MR are, then you should. Um, I spoke about them quite heavily in my third po first podcast, so I won't talk too much about NewMR again. But uh, what I will say, just to give a brief description, is that NewMR is a conference, but online. So you can listen in to really great content for free. Um, if you want to donate, you can. And uh, what's great about NewMR is that you can listen in live to the webinars that take place. But even if you miss them, they've got like their equivalent of BBC iPlayer um, and you can play all of the webinars again for free um, f directly from the NewMR website and YouTube. Um, so I did my talk with them um, on Wednesday and my talk was not actually about games and gamification this time. Uh, the talk was much more kind of UX design focused. Um, it was it was called Pokemon Go, designing from the start with a finish line in mind. Um, and there's a few reasons why I decided to go down that route for that presentation. Um, the the new MR theme for the webinar event, like you know, like every conference might have a theme, right? Um, this was research innovation, and although designing um, a compelling engaging survey is not necessarily innovation um, I felt that it was innovative to talk about design um, because just because it's so undervalued um, in market research I think um, so much so that um, Annie Pettit who is one of the thought leaders in our field um, has written a book called People Aren't Robots which is available now 
um, and uh, uh, you can um, get a hard copy as well as an ebook copy. Um, and that's all about questionnaire design. So clearly there's a need for it. Um, and the reason I used Pokemon Go as a case study, um, and I mentioned this in, a, in the talk as well, so apologies for anybody who's going to listen to that and, um, you know, hear, hear me say this again. It's uh, just because Pokemon Go is a game that was, you know, obviously um, developed for entertainment, had world-renowned popularity, um, but then lost something like crazy, like 10 million players in three months. Um, and I, f I found this really interesting as a case study, like, well, Pokemon Go didn't just launch and become really popular as an augmented reality app, but obviously as many of of you listeners know Pokemon Go has been around for years even when I was at school I remember you know the boys in my school uh, primarily boys um swapping Pokemon cards and things like that so it had this kind of you know in, kind of emotional investment in it as, as a game as a brand so when I heard on online that it was losing players um I, I was wondering, well, what happened? Was it a tech thing? Because it, it, the game uses augmented reality on, on your mobile phone. But it wasn't anything to do with technology, accessibility, anything like that. It was just people were becoming disengaged. So this was a kind of aha moment for me. So it was like, okay, well, where did Pokemon Go go wrong? And are there some lessons there or learnings, as some people like to say? <laughs> are there some learnings? Are there some lessons that market researchers can take heed of. So I used Pokemon Go as an example to say, okay, well, where did Pokemon Go go wrong? Um, that's a bit of a mouthful. Where did Pokemon Go go wrong? Um, but where did that as a game go wrong? And what can we as market researchers learn from that to make our surveys better in terms of design so that they are really engaging and they don't experience some of the problems that Pokemon Go had? Um, and just in brief, I mean, some of the disengagement was just that people found it boring and repetitive. Again, many similarities with market research, right? People finding questions boring and repetitive, even the question formats. You know, if you get lots of scales over and over again, that, that in itself is, is boring and repetitive um, and grids and things like that. So so some of the feedback with Pokemon Go was that it was boring and repetitive, that, um, you know, there weren't enough bonus features to kind of keep the novelty going. You know, there was quite a few comments that are in the presentation I ended up putting in different categories um, to basically say, you know, Pokemon Go experienced low engagement with the game and there's a lot of that being echoed in the participant community, um, again, about being boring and repetition in surveys and things like that. So what can we learn from it? So my um, teaching... <laughs> is to use SIMK, S-I-M-K, so smart intuition and meaningful creativity. So it's all about learning who the participants are so that you can design something that's going to make them tick, kind of like how game developers do. You know, they are very commercially focused. Um, you know, they learn about who their audience are. They have a very specific group of people. They want to aim their game out. They'll learn about them, how to engage them, you know, when developing a game. And it's the same in market research. Um, and so that's why it's smart intuition, because sometimes when you're designing, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's a survey or a game or a drawing or whatever. Sometimes when you're designing, you have some intuition 
about what could be engaging for the player or the participant or the reader or whoever it might be. You have this intuition of what could be interesting for them. But often it's a hunch. So the smart intuition part of it comes in, well, let's let's smarten up that in- intuition by going out, gaining insights and evidence to say, okay, you have this idea of why a certain element of your design could work for an audience, but has that been used elsewhere? Can you take evidence from a different case study, if you like, on why that would be useful in your particular design? And one example that I didn't use in the presentation, just because of lack of time that I think it's important to mention, is personalisation. Personalisation is something that is a tool, if you like, an engagement tool that has been used by all sorts of industries. I mean, you see it a lot now with uh, books being personalised. There's a huge campaign here in the UK for this um, a personalised book, um, which, um, you know, can have the name of your child in it. Um, and that's, I mean, that's really cool. I think it's called The Boy, or if it's a girl, right? So The Boy or Girl Who Lost His or Her Name. And then you'd see your kid's name in it. Um, we now have videos that you could pay for where Santa Claus, um, you know, sends a Christmas message to your kid and and references their name. And it's such a simple thing to use someone's name. But but personalisation in that way, and, and of course, much more uh, deeper ways, is being used everywhere in social media, um, in books, in games. Um, and it's a really interesting tool to use in, in surveys. And I've used personalisation in research games, not just in mentioning, for example, the participant's name, but asking them to to kind of input some information about people they know so that, you know, we can set up the games like they're talking to some of the people that they know in real life. Um, so, so, you know, my intuition when I first designed a game that used um, personalization, you know, was, oh, this could be really engaging. And then I thought, well, okay, how do I smarten up this intuition? Well, I'm going to go out and find evidence of where personalization has worked in other industries to make a case of why this could be uh, an, an engagement tool within the games. Um, so that's the smart intuition part. Where the meaningful creativity part comes in that, that pertains to my new MR presentation and in every piece of um game design that I do is to design with function uh, by the way that noise in the background was my dog sneezing sorry about that um but was to is to design with function so that every everything that you create has a meaning so combined with the smart intuition and the meaningful creativity it's for me a foolproof plan to engage people in what you're doing whether it's a survey or a game or a survey game or otherwise um and, and really help to immerse them in the content because you're designing with function, right? So in the in the in the presentation, you know, I'm talking about designing um from the start with the finish line in mind. And that's that's really actually quite rooted in using behavioral economics in design, because what you're trying to do is, you know, um almost manipulate certain uh user behaviors. Um, through your design in order to create certain outcomes. So, for example, if you want your participants to feel a certain way, um, you might think about, for example, um, including music and sound effects 
in the in the background of your survey or, or your research game or your online community or whatever. I mean, I know that's quite an extreme example, but it just goes to show how design equals, you know, nudging behaviours, which equals certain outcomes for your participants. So, so um, of anyway, I've gone on far too long about that. But if any of you are interested in that as a presentation, you can find it online. Um, on newmart.org, you can look at their research innovation play again page. You should see my name on the list there, and you can press press the play button and have a look at that. It's a, it's a about a fifteen or twenty minute presentation. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so what? Yeah, that's what's been going on. So I did the newmart presentation. That was really uh, I enjoyed doing that. That was really good. I felt like I. Um, that was a you know that was the first time I spoke about something different in many years and that was nice to be able to share my process of working and designing with other people um and um another thing that has happened this week which is which is interesting is that um I got an email um from a company who was saying oh you know we found a this screen grab of your game of one of your games we'd love to use it in um a dutch school book and that was really cool. So, um, we, you know, we had a bit of a backwards and forwards. I was trying to, you know, understand a little bit more about um, what the book is for and, um, you know, th- what what kinds of people would, would read this book. And the book is, um, and I've translated this from Dutch, um, so, so it's very a rough translation using Google. The book will be called Quantitative Applied Research on a Scientific Basis. Again, loose translation. And the book is for high school and university age students. So, um, well, yeah, I mean, it's super exciting that a screenshot of one of our games is being used in, in this book. But what's even more exciting is that students are going to be learning about games and gamification for research, which is amazing because one of my passions um, is is really doing as much as possible with students to help them learn about these methodologies and really get them inspired about how they could apply game-based research methods when they are in the commercial world of of, of research. Um, so that's that was a really cool thing for me to see. And it was a screen grab from our um, avatar creator tool where you can make an image of yourself. You can choose like your hairstyle and your body shape and skin colour and makeup or whatever and accessories so it was just a little screen grab from that um, which is really cool um and what else is going on so um I mentioned in my other podcast that I'm going to um India soon to speak at a conference I realized that I didn't actually mention the name of that conference but I'll I'll be flying there on January the 5th and speaking on January the 8th um and the conference is called Reaching Consumers of Emerging Markets and it's with the 2017 annual conference of Emerging Markets Conference Board. Um the hashtag if any of you were interested in following that in, in early January is going to be hashtag EMCB2017. So that's EMCB2017 and I'll certainly be tweeting. So yes, I'm talking at the conference, but I'm very interested in hearing from the other speakers as well. Um so it seems to be that a lot of the other speakers um, are a real mix, actually, from kind of practitioners like myself, if you like, and academics. Um, so that's really cool. Um, so um, what else is going on? Um, oh, I have a book that I'd like to share with you, or not one that I have at the moment. It's on my Christmas list. But the um, book that I'm interested in reading is called Dear Data. 
Um, and I'm just typing that into my Google at the moment because I'd like to give you all a little bit more information about it. You know, I didn't want to say anything that was incorrect. Um, but yeah, Dear Data, I mean, from what I've gathered, because I follow the authors of the book on Twitter, what I've gathered is that this started out as a project that ended up as a book. Um, it, uh, on their website it says it's from an award-winning project uh, comes an inspiring collaborative book that makes data artistic personable personal and open to all so I've seen lots of Twitter um, pictures from the authors um, who have shown how kids are are drawing um, kind of infographics and, and other forms of data visualization and it's just really cool that kids are getting into this and understand it they understand the transition from looking at data into, you know, using that data to design something that is going to inform people about that data and what that data means. And, 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 you know, from some of the photographs that have been shown, these kids look as maybe young as eight or nine. Um, but equally, it's a book for, um, for adults. Um, so the, the two authors are Georgia Lupi and Stephanie Posovec, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it that like, but they're both on Twitter and very interesting ladies to follow. And it says here that their book has a forward by Maria Popova, who is somebody else I follow on Twitter as well. Um, so that's on my reading list. And and um, if you haven't heard of Dear Data, then have a look at their website, dear-data.com, and just take a look at that and um, and and maybe tell someone who has a little bit of extra cash to uh buy you this book it's uh apparently it's uh 300 pages and um oh, oh yeah this is what i wanted to read to you yeah this is the this is the crux of the project that became the book so each um, i'm just reading for the website here so each week and for a year we collected and measured a particular type of data about our lives use this data to make a drawing on a postcard sized sheet of paper and then drop the postcard in an english post box or an american mailbox um, and so what you've got on the website, and I'm sure is going to feature in the book, is these really cool um, images of their postcards from and to each other, just kind of recapping different elements of their lives. And some of them are just very simple line drawings. Some of them are even looking like um, sheets of music. Um, so, yeah, I just think that's going to be a really good book. But I won't go on about it anymore. You probably think I've been paid by the authors to endorse it I certainly haven't um but it's it's on my uh it's on my list um so um keeping an eye on the time I just wanted to go through some questions that I've had um as many of you know in the first podcast I had just a few questions um from people that knew I was going to do the podcast and wanted to uh help out wanted to hear their questions being answered during the podcast I've now had many more questions so I don't actually know if I'll have time to answer them all but I'll certainly I will certainly try um so okay um I have a I have a question here from Annie J Lambert who is a young lady I don't even think she's 25 yet but she owns a company called PDC Research in um in Guyana in the Caribbean and she um, got in touch with me some months ago now, just interested in RTG on a commercial basis. So that was very much a kind of sort of client phone call. But it ended up developing into a relationship where, um, you know, Annie Jay was um, at one point just sort of kind of uh, picking my brain about a, a few things because she'd read 
an article quad written on sort of 10 things to do when you're starting up a research agency anyway so she was very excited about the podcast and wanted to put forward some questions so the, so, so the questions are from her um okay so um oh she's got loads of questions right okay um i'll read the first one breaking the glass ceiling in developing countries and even developed countries women entrepreneurs are seen as less competent in the market research industry in europe and north america do you experience similar gender biases and if you do how do you cope and what do you do to arrive above that bias um goodness me um okay so so like i enjoy doing with all questions let's break it down so okay I don't know if women are seen as less competent I don't think that's an I mean I don't think that's an issue I mean I of course I can't speak for all men in the world to know if they see women in the workplace as less competent but I certainly haven't come across uh, males in market research or other industries that I've worked in that see women as less competent um, I think it's just about people people find it really hard to change and I think if you've been paying men more than women for a certain amount of time and suddenly you are thinking about paying women the same although that should be really simple I think that's a change that some companies might struggle with and uh, so it's not necessarily about women being less competent but just the change of recognizing women in the same way or paying women in the same way or giving women the same sort of positions as they give men um you know just changing how people are with those sorts of things I think is, is a change that is happening but like most change can be slow it's not an overnight thing so I don't so yes I don't know if it's about women being seen as less competent um but you know what you're saying uh as you part of your question says in the market research industry in europe and north america do you experience similar gender biases okay so i'll answer that um no i don't i really don't think i i i do um i mean i've had one or two instances where i have thought to myself okay the way that this guy just spoke to me would he have spoken to me like that if i was an older male and i've usually thought probably not but literally that's been one or two times in 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 my whole career working in market research so even before I started RTG actually before I started RTG I worked at Nebu who are uh, as many of you know are a survey software company and the I think it's safe to say at the time I don't know now but at the time the majority of the employees were men and I never was made to feel less equal um and I, I was never, I, I, I never really until now actually stopped to think that I was working at a company full of males because it was such a non-issue for me. Um, and I think maybe it's, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if there's a cultural thing there because a lot, it was, a, you know, Nebu is a primary a Dutch company. They have their offices in an area called Altheid. Outraged. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Out, outraged. I don't know in um in the Netherlands. Um, you know, so I don't know if there's a cultural thing that women are, in general maybe in in that culture are quite um treated sorry quite equally. But I certainly was never made to feel um that you know I was you know I was never experiencing any gender biases there. Um, or maybe I'm just really ignorant to it. Maybe I have been experiencing gender biases, but I'm just not 
aware of it. Um, I mean, obviously, since starting my own business in RTG, um, I've I've not actually employed any females, which is terrible, but not because females haven't applied to RTG. Actually, some females lately have um, randomly, I mean, we don't have any vacancies, but they've just sent their CVs because they feel that RTG would be a very cool company to work with, which is great. But prior to that, when I was actually looking for staff, it was done in a very startup way, you know, like it wasn't, it was, it was hiring people that I knew could do the job and do it well. And it, it just happened that those people were male. It wasn't that I was making a conscious choice between male and female, because actually there wasn't any females that I knew and trusted with with my baby with my business at that time um you know who had who had that passion that skill set and it ended up being um it ended up being males so um you know and the other thing to be aware of is that we have these unconscious gender biases and um Annie Pettit who I, I know I've mentioned before in this podcast and in, in the other podcast she is very vocal about gender biases and she talks about her own gender biases. She actually said on the front cover of her book, um, her significant other designed the front cover and her book is called People Aren't Robots um, and it's a guidebook for questionnaire design and he di- and he designed the robots as females and Annie, uh, Annie was saying that she kind of stopped from it. It's like, why is he designing the robots as, as females? And then that's when she realised that she had her own gender bias and she she actually wrote a LinkedIn article about it, which is really interesting. So I haven't um, experienced any gender biases, but the, 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 the latter part of your question is how do you cope and what do you do to rise above the bias? So on the couple of occasions where I have felt that I have experienced a gender bias, um, from men um and actually from women as well a couple so yeah I think on the couple of occasions where I have experienced that it's been it's been from men and women um how did I cope I just think I just think I just brushed it off I just I kind of just put it down to well I know I wouldn't have been treated like that if I was a bloke so sod them I'm just gonna get on and do what the fuck it was that I wanted to do and you know if they don't uh want to talk to me like an equal or talk to me with the level of respect I feel that I deserve then I'll just do what I needed to do but go elsewhere whether that's working in a partnership you know I'll go elsewhere whether they're a supplier I mean whoever you know I don't discriminate um and I think that's important you know know your value um if you feel that somebody is treating you in a way that you find disrespectful whether it's a gender bias or not in any way that you feel is not respecting you um if you feel comfortable to I think you should approach it with that person um or if you feel that approaching it with that person probably wouldn't make the blindest of difference I would say just brush it off move on deal with other people if you can um you know because very often people who have these gender biases and maybe are not treating men and women equally or not treating women with as much respect as they should. Um, you know, I think maybe a lot of the times they're not even doing it consciously. So so pulling them up on it might, might be a kind of, oh, shit moment for them. Like, I didn't even know I was doing that. 
So you could be the person that breaks that cycle for them. But if you feel that there are people that are almost a bit too far gone, like they're so oblivious that even if you spoke to them about it, it probably wouldn't make a difference, then just just move on, you know, work with people that are going to respect you and value you. And you're going to treat them how you expect to be treated as well. That's important as well. Just don't ever treat people like you're inferiors you know what I mean like just treat other people like you want to be treated so that you can go to bed at night knowing that if you need to stand up for yourself that you can do that and you know that you won't ever treat other people in the way that you feel that you've been treated in a bad way um so I hope that helps um I'm gonna move on to some um further questions so books what are five books every market researcher should have in their library? Uh, that's a really good question. So I have like my work library in front of me on my desk here. So um, I know what probably other researchers would say. And when I say them, I'm probably going to get quite a lot of eye rolls because they're very standard, standard books people would recommend. But they would do it for a reason because they are good books. So uh, Stephen Pinker, The Stuff of Thought, that's a very good book. Um, Heard by Mark Earls, How to Change Mass Behaviour by Harnessing Our True Nature. Um, Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. Um, so that's three books. Um, another one that I found, find very useful, I think it's a bit of an old one, let me have a look. Um, Leading Edge Marketing Research, 21st Century Tools and Practices by Robert J. Caden, Gerald Linda, Melvin Prince. That's a sage publication that came out in, let's have a look when it was first published or more recently published, uh, 2012. Um, and so this book for me has got lots of highlights, uh, highlighted bits in it and notes and it's a bit dogged. Um, just because that's a very useful book um, for, you know, market research practices and um, e even just getting to grips with some market research terminolo terminologies. Um, and what other books are there? So that's four books I've mentioned. Um, Answers to Contemporary Market Research Questions. That's um, that's useful, very introductory. Um, that's um, produced by SMR. And the uh, the team of authors is quite long. Um, it was curated, so I won't read all the contributing authors because I'd be here forever, but it was curated by Finn Rabin, Ray Pointer and Sue York. Um, and Ray and Sue both run New MR. Um, Finn, as many of you know, is the head of SMR. So Answers to Contemporary Market Research Questions is really kind of like a basic book you should, you should have anyway, right? That should just be on your... Uh, on your uh, desk somewhere um okay so that's five books but because this is a games and gamification podcast there's some other books that I would like to recommend um which have been pivotal for me in my PhD work in my commercial work and in writing my book um so the first one which is not really an obvious one but the first one is just simply called narrative the New Critical Idiom, that's by Paul Cobley. Um, the, where is it? I've got the other one here, The Storytelling Animal, 
How Stories Make Us Human by Jonathan Gottschall. Gottschall. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I probably am not saying that right at all. Um, so The Storytelling Animal by Jonathan Gottschall. Um, that's how I'm just going to say it. A narrative by Paul Cobley. So they're about story. Um, and the reason that they are useful in games because games often give you unnecessary obstacles to overcome. And all stories have obstacle to overcome they ha all have an element of trouble where there needs to be a resolution um so actually there's lots of links between games and stories and if you're making games for research you want to sort of give the pe the participants a sense that there is obstacles to overcome and there is because we're asking them to solve a, a business issue through research right so so those have been very um useful for me um, and also, um, the other one here, I'm just pulling it out to get the authors correct, Glued to Games, again, that's another one that's absolutely dogged with red pen in it and notes and highlighted all over the place, that was really inspiring for me, so Glued to Games is by Rigby and Ryan, what are their first night names, they've written loads of papers, so if you're interested in games and gamification in general, look up Scott Rigby and Richard M. Ryan, uh, so Glue to Games is their book that was published in, published in, published in 2011. Um, so again, that's been very useful. Um, playing with video games, another one that is dogged, that's written by James Newman. And I got that from the University of Winchester Library when I was meeting with one of my PhD supervisors. And I'm so glad that I came across that in, in um, not the library, the bookshop, sorry, the university bookshop. Um, and it's really cool, actually, because I got to meet the author of this book. So James Newman is a professor at Bath Spa University here in the UK. And he was speaking at the UK Video Games Industry Conference some years ago now, maybe even four years ago. Any, uh, no, not four years ago. Two or three years ago. Anyway, I can't remember. And um, he... He and I then met for a coffee because I was just like, I have to speak to this guy. Um, I didn't actually register at first that the James Newman on the stage was the James Newman who was who was the author of the book that at the time I had in my bag. Um, so it was really great for me to go, oh my God, hi, um, I'm Betty. I'm reading a book and pull it out as evidence. Like, here it is. Um, so um, he was a great person to speak to. We had a coffee and I ended up interviewing him as part of my PhD work. Um, and he was very gracious to give his time. But anyway, the book is very useful. It's, um, it's not... So although it talks about games, uh, as in what is a game, what constitutes as a game, he talks about the various ways that we play with video games. So all of the other things that we can do with a game that are not necessarily obvious. For example, when we're playing a game like Super Mario, we might speed through one of the levels just to see how quickly we can do it. I don't know if any of you have done that. I certainly have. Where you like run through the game, you don't you don't collect any coins, any points, you don't even, you know, stop to kill people or like um you know, get get the mushroom to make yourself bigger or anything like that. You just literally run through to see how quickly you can get to the end. 
Um, that is a way of playing with a video game where you're kind of creating your own rules and own game within a game. Um, and he talks about, you know, even cheating and, uh, and and hacking and how we use game merchandise and paraphernalia. He talks about cosplay. So, yeah, really interesting book for um, those of you who are interested in games. And, and it would be certainly very inspiring if you're thinking about looking at games in research. Um and I have got loads here. I've got at least 10 other books on games and gamification. But the one final one that I want to recommend, because I don't want to go on about this too much, because I know that there's more questions, is Finding Flow, The Psychology of Engagement with Everyday Life. And this is so useful, even if you're not interested in using games and gamification, because as researchers, we need to be designers. We need to be engagement architect architects, right? I mean, I don't even know if that's a a thing yes I'm gonna make it a thing right now we need to be research artists we need to be engagement architects we need to learn how to make our surveys more engaging and sometimes that's not always about the technology you use like just simply using augmented reality or virtual reality or even games right because if you design these things poorly it doesn't matter how cool the technology is you're gonna you might disengage people through poor design just like Pokemon Go right like I mentioned earlier you know Using augmented reality, game on your phone, um, lots of hyperbole around it, you know, couldn't have had any more free marketing, and yet there were some elements of the design that left people disengaged. So, Michali Csikszentmihalyi, I think I'm spelling his name, uh, pronouncing his name really wrong there, but Michali, M-I-H-A-L-Y. If you just type that in into Google, actually, just the M-I-H a-L-Y and put finding flow you'll you'll get the whole name probably in links to the book um it's it's quite a short book it's a good read um and he talks about what what flow means different examples of flow how to create flow um um actually there's a bit I highlighted here that I thought would be good to read um because there's so much in here that you can highlight and take notes about and then implement that in your in your survey projects um so and you know there's lots of evidence in here so he's he's got some um case studies that he shares um and this is a book that has been cited a million times so it's it's a useful one to have it's an important one for the library okay i'm not going to talk any more about books um i hope that's answered the question um about the um good uh good books that researchers should have in their library both general market research books and um books if you're interested in games um okay what other questions have we got here um what uh, for marketing what has been the most effective marketing tool used for the generation of leads um Okay, this is a good one. Um, I think I might have touched on this slightly in the other podcast, so I, I won't go on about it too much. But I was talking in the last podcast because um, somebody asked a question about sales, and I was talking about just being passionate about what you do and talking about what you do with passion is what's going to sell you. Trying to sell to people, I think, is what puts people off. So in terms of the, effect, the most effective marketing tool that you can use for the generation of leads, I think it's you you know, people engage with people, you know, you can have your social media marketing, which I think is important. So you need to be on Twitter, you need to be speaking at conferences, you need to 
um, you know, have a LinkedIn presence, uh, potentially publish articles on LinkedIn, try to publish articles in industry magazines. But you are going to be the face of all that because you are the one tweeting. You are the one writing on your LinkedIn publication page. You are the right one writing a, a article that's going to be um, published in a industry magazine. It's all you. So if you have the passion and the knowledge and the, can I say chutzpah? It's a, a Yiddish word. Um, I think people come to you because they'll they'll see that you're knowledgeable, they see that they can interact with you on a human level, and I think that they will come to you. Um, but, but, I mean, in terms of more commercial th um, things, you know, I think having a fantastic website helps. I think when you're first starting a business, have a decent website. If I showed you the RTG first ever website that I tried to hack together myself, you would be horrified. Um, <laughs> however, uh, WordPress was invented after and I got to use WordPress. So actually the RTG website that you uh, could see now, researchergaming.com, I've I've created that website. Um, and while I'm proud of that, it's probably not something that I should mention out loud really because um, I'm not a web developer. WordPress is just fantastic to use. Um, but again, it comes down to design. It comes down to what you want people to do. So I find that because I developed my website or different versions of my website over the course of five years, it that time gave me a chance to really know what my prospective clients are looking for and cater the design of the website to that. So, for example, when the first ever RTG website, which was Diabolical, spoke much more about RTG as an idea. It was about the idea of doing research through gaming and the idea that this is a really groundbreaking um, I, um, methodology and technology um, that, you know, everybody can benefit from. Um, and it was really, it was really about the methodology. Whereas now, um, the, the website, I think, is much more, cater much more, it, well, it sounds much more commercial, I think, um, it doesn't, it, while it talks about games and gamification, um, it's not, go it's not the focal point, um, and, you know, there's, there's some, kind of, you know, there's client testimonials on there now, and it's, it's, it's kind of saying more that this is a tool that we could use to help solve your business problems, whereas my first ever website wasn't really concerned about anybody's business problems. It was like, hey, everybody, this is a really cool idea. Um, so you have a compelling, uh, a compelling, have a, have a website that really responds to what your prospective clients really want to know about your business. Um, you know, that will help generate leads, right? Because obviously, if they're, if they're reading a website and think, and, and, working with you sounds like it's going to be really straightforward and they can see that you're loved by your your current and previous clients then they're going to press that contact button and that's going to be a lead that's going to be the email that comes to you that says hi we want to do a demo phone call or whatever it might be so yeah good website and, and just put yourself out there and, and give it that human factor and that will generate leads um i know for me um and i've said this before um, in the in the earlier podcast, I've I've not done any cold calling, which I'm so grateful for. But then on the other hand, I've done salesy stuff in other way, probably and, and not consciously. So I've done lots of conference talks that has got people going. 
oh, right, let's, you know, contact Betty. And they have, you know, and they'll, they'll email me and say, oh, hi, um, I saw you speak at this conference. Or they might say, hi, I heard that you spoke at this conference and I wanted to get in touch with you to look at how, you know, we could employ games in our in our research or, you know, we want to um, commission a game for our customers or whatever. Uh, or it might be that they'll say, oh, you know, I... Um, you know, I, sus I subscribed to this magazine and I saw that you wrote this article in there and I would like to talk to you a bit more about it. So it's a much warmer approach. So yes, you do have to do the hard work of putting yourself out there, but I think that generates leads in a much warmer way with a human with a human face. So I hope that answers the question and helps. Um, so some other some other questions here. What have we got here? Um, team building. How do you, hi Betty, I hope you're well, how do you manage effectively a remote team of analysts? What are five tips you would give concerning team building in a market research agency? Um, so, okay, so uh, so RTG, everybody works remotely. We don't have an office. Uh, we never have done. Um, I've never felt that that was, that was necessary for our business. It might be in the future, but certainly when I'm working with experts who live in other countries um or travel a lot anyway so they're never really in one place for for more than a week um you know we have the technology now to be using skype and go to meeting and webex and you know sometimes it's not the same as being face to face but i certainly have not in my experience found any hiccups by working with people remotely um and you know, I think how how you work with that is, you know, making sure everybody knows who everybody is, you know, because there's some occasions where you might work very closely with suppliers, but maybe they don't work with everybody in your team. So I think it's really important to introduce everybody to one another um, where you can, where you can afford it because flights can be expensive, go and visit each other, try to do, try to get some face to face time in. Um, but I think one of the things that has worked really well in RTG is everyone has a lot of respect for each other. And that has really helped the closeness of the team, even though we work remotely, even though sometimes we don't talk every day because sometimes I don't need to talk to certain people, um, in the team every day because, you know, they're working on a different part of the project and, you know, the focus of a project is somewhere else with a certain different um, kind of group in the team. Um, so I think everybody having a high amount of respect for each other really helps because they know that each of us is an expert in our field and we've all got the relevant experience behind us to do our jobs very well which means that we are quite happy to come to each other to pick each other's brains. Um, and I think another thing with RTG that I really pride myself on is there, there really isn't a hierarchy here. Um, and I know that a lot of people talk about that in a very, you know, it's very modern, isn't it, to have a, you know, no hierarchy structure. Um, obviously, the bigger your company is, the, <laughs> the more difficult it is to have um, no hierarchy. Um, RTG being a, a, a boutique agency size still means that we can, you know, work with each other in a way that there's no hi hierarchy. Um, you know, I remember having um, an intern called David who kept calling me boss and it was just really like, please don't call me boss. Because, you know, he, he had so much experience 
that and I would pick his brain about stuff so I think in terms of team building working remotely you know let people have some time to know each other if they can meet face to face that will help but I think share with your team much more about you know who everybody is right I mean you know let's say for example you're working with a team of six people they've all got LinkedIn profiles encourage each one of them to go on each other's LinkedIn profiles get let them have that mutual respect for each other's knowledge and skills and experience and I think you'll find then that that's a much more collaborative culture to work in where people are are looking to each other with admiration in this way and can and feel very comfortable to ask for, for from advice for everybody and it's not like oh that person's like the CEO I can't talk to them you know have an open atmosphere where 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 you can communicate with everybody no matter what their job title is or the le- or the level in the company so for the person that asked this question for Anna Jay being the founder of the company I would say Just make sure that everybody has your email and feels comfortable that they can call you and email you with their queries at any time and just make it very open um, communication and let all your team know more about each other through sharing LinkedIn profiles, sharing CVs, letting them all know how highly skilled each individual is in the business and what they bring to the table. So I hope that helps. Um, Okay, so one more question before we move on from the queries. Um, So influencers, can you name some market researchers that have inspired and influenced you? Um, So market research industry does a thing, I think a few times a year, different publications will do it, where it will say something like top five market research influencers, top 10 Twitter market research influencers and stuff like that, which is really useful because it it gets you to know kind of who's who right um and and equally you know what they're talking about is that is that a trending topic at the moment so for example if you've got someone who's an influencer they're talking a lot about online communities well that's that's quite a clue isn't it as to what's trending in terms of topic as well as people um but in terms of people that have influenced me and inspired me um oh god there's so many which is a really good thing um and I don't even know where to start. Okay, so I think I'll start. All right, I think I'll do this in alphabetical order so nobody gets offended. So Andrew Jevons is someone who's been a mentor of mine. I've got quite a few of them. Um, and you should get your mentors together as well. Um, Andrew Jevons has been a mentor for me since I was about 22 or 23. Um, I worked at Nebu, um, the survey software company, Andrew was working for Nebu in the US. And Andrew knew that I was going to speak at the Casro conference about doing research through games while I was at Nebu. And he was very supportive about it. And very supportive when I wanted to start RTG. And all these years later, Andrew, um, you'll, you'll see that he's on the RTG website. He is so involved with our software and in, in projects, um, you know, gives feedback on designs. And um, Andrew has bags of experience in in the, in the software, in market research. He's incredibly bright. He's got a background in neuroscience. Um, he He's just one of the smartest guys that I know. 
and he's he's very funny as well he's got a very dry sense of humor and we get we get on very well and i love him i just think he's such a cool guy um i've never told him that i love him but if you hear it andrew i love you you know i do and uh, you're my one of my best buddies um you're so amazing um but what yeah he inspires me because yes he's older than me but he just has this great um background in academia and in 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 being a practitioner he you know he knows a bit about everything but then he's got his core subjects that he's passionate about like his background in neuroscience for example and his um his work in in uh, data analysis text analytics and he's doing a lot of stuff with that um practically and commercially now so he's you know basically taking everything he's he knows and has experienced and and, and he's um created a business called mass cognition out of that now um you know and i just i just look at andrew and i just think you know he's never he's never given up he's he's always valued knowledge he's always teaching me something new um you know with andrew we have a joke about like word of the day like we might be skyping about something and he'll he'll say a word and i'll go and google it because and he he'll probably know i'm googling it he, he kind of knows the extent of my vocabulary so we'll have a word of the day and he you know and he um you know and he he's he's uh, got a daughter called uh, I won't say her name but he's got a daughter he he loves her to pieces and she clearly adores her dad and she's very inspired by him and has grown up to be a bright knowledgeable intelligent young woman um and yeah so and and Andrew has a um an interest in I think I can't say them called them rocks I call them geodes um so he's got an interest in that, which I find really quirky and cool. He's got a workshop in his house. Um, so yeah, Andrew Jevons, um, super smart, intelligent guy with a breadth of experience and background and has certainly been, been very pivotal to, to my self-development um, as, as, a, as a businesswoman, as someone who is creating software. Um, and he has he has been a very good friend as well. Um, so other people, uh, I was doing this in alphabetical order. So Annie Pettit um, inspires me because again she's someone that doesn't give up. Again, very intelligent um, and passionate about what she does. She she's she'll stick up for the little guy, and she's very vocal about gender equality and market research. And I love the balls on her. Um, so um it's been it's it's something that probably quite a few people have heard about but at a certain conference there was um a panel of males talking about the future of market research and she put up her hand to ask a question to this panel and said does the future of market research include any women and i loved that um that was really delicious um but she's always been like that. I mean, as long as I've known Annie, she's always been very, very much like that. And the thing is, Annie can be, I think she's quite, sh I mean, she'll say that she's shy, but yet she knows that it's important to say something rather than not say anything at all. Um, even if it's just, if you can just muster a whisper. So, I, I, and you know, I mean, she's very um, forthright, on is that the right word forthright very passionate i guess i'll keep using that word about data privacy and ethics in research and she certainly you know shared some very interesting um case studies and papers um with me over the years which has then, then helped with my work 
And um, again, I regard Annie as a friend. I just think she's such a lovely person, a great market researcher. I remember seeing her speaking um, at conferences, um, talking about um, the work she was doing at the time under conversation about social media listening. And I found that really fascinating. Um, and I, I, what I, lo I mean, I loved having, uh, and Annie's very funny as well, actually. She's got a great sense of humor. And Annie and I spoke at a conference um, not together, we wasn't, we weren't co-speaking, but she, you know, did her talk, I did my talk, um, in Venezuela, this is a few years ago now, and we then spoke about what we do, um, on a radio show in Venezuela as well, which was really cool, and so we had spent about three or four days together, and just kind of got to know each other a bit more, and, um, yeah, I guess that's when I fell in love with her, and I just thought, oh, she's really, really cool, she's so down to earth, I can really talk to her, she's funny, she's intelligent, she's passionate, you know, like the Annie that you see is, you know, on the social media, who really cares about these things is is really Annie. She does care about all that stuff. Um, so yeah, so Annie. So okay, so that was Andrew, Annie, and other people. Um, so Ray Pointer is somebody who is very well known in the market research industry. So people probably going to roll their eyes and say, "Oh, of course, Ray Pointer has inspired you." It's like you know, it's like the equivalent of everybody interested in behavioral economics talk about Daniel Kahneman, but. Um, yes, Ray has inspired me. Ray has influenced me in that he makes me want to be smarter. He wants, he, 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 he doesn't know this, I'm sure, but, you know, sometimes I speak to Ray and I just think, like, I want to, I want to be like that because Ray does so much. He, he writes books and he does all these different kinds of work and he sp speaks at conferences and he writes his blogs and articles and he jogs and exercises and God knows where he finds the time. But, um, you know, and, and and again, very nice person and very, you know, easy to get along with. And I just think, you know, I'd love I'd love to be like that. Um, and I, I want to be like that now, you know. So although these people that I've mentioned are older than me, they, they kind of give me this um, sense of urgency that I want to grow myself and I want to evolve really quickly because I want to be on their level right I want to be like them and and that's so good because because collectively they all without probably knowing it have just kind of pushed me in ways that I probably wouldn't have done without their influence or them just even being in my lives um and like Andrew Ray is a long-time uh, mentor and advisor um I remember actually Ray nominated me for a Ginny Valentine award um, many years ago and I was so um I, I was I mean don't get you know I loved receiving the award but I I just was so um happy that it came from Ray because this was someone that I I really respected so um and it was for a bravery and research award so that was really nice um and yeah and I, st I, I still communicate with Ray not just through RTG with him being an advisor but I'm collaborating more with NewMR um, and I remember when New MR first started, Ray had asked if I could be one of uh, the advisors. Um, so, you know, collectively, us advisors would pitch in information about the kind of content that could be on New MR or even how the website looked. Um, you know, it was very broad, as it is with any kind of startup, uh, whether it's, um, you know, a social enterprise or not for profit or commercial or otherwise. Um and again, I was, I think I was at Nebu at the time. So I was at about 21 or 22, I can't remember. But again, just feeling like, oh my God, Ray's asked me to be an advisor on UMR. Oh my God, oh my God. 
Um, and I think a lot of people have that reaction to Ray. I remember speaking to someone recently. I won't name any names. I went, I went and had a client meeting and the lady I was speaking to said that she had gone to a conference where Ray was speaking on the stage and the lady, the, the young lady next to her was like, oh my God, that's Ray Pointer. I've been following him on Twitter for years. Um, and just kind of had this kind of like fandom thing going on, which made me laugh. Um, because I, I, I had that and I suppose to a certain extent in a really geeky way, I still have that. Um, okay, so, yes, so, Annie, Andrew, Ray, um, Kristen Luck, um, again, this is somebody that comes up all the time in these kind of top influencer polls, but, again, I just love her ballsiness, I love, um, you know, that she, she started up the Women in Research, um, initiative, which has really grown, I mean, it, I think it might have even just started up as a Facebook group, and now has its events around the world, they even have a job, um, like a recruitment site, and they advertise job postings, um, and Kristen is incredibly passionate about women's visibility in market research and, and beyond, so it's not about research, she also encourages women in technology, um, women in data science, and so on, um, but, but, you know, before that, she had um, been president of Decipher, which is another software, a survey software company, and is now kind of running her own show, which I think is called Luck Consulting or, or something along those lines. Um, and you know, she just had this very, um, you know, I'm sure in, like all of us, right, when we, you know, starting our companies or working for companies, every, you know, everyone has their ups and downs. But Kristen just seems to be somebody that is very resourceful resilient intelligent um and just gets shit done and you know this is what this i suppose this is what's the common thread with all these people that inspire me is that they're all very intelligent they all get shit done and yet they're very down to earth and personable and um have really inspired me to grow as a as a as a young businesswoman as can i say i'm a young business woman anymore at 31 i don't know um hopefully um but yes, yeah, so, so Kristen Luck as well. Um, and other people that have inspired and influenced me. Well, this person isn't a market researcher and he'll probably cringe from me saying this, but the other person that has influenced me related to my work in, in research is Will Pointer, who is um, somebody that worked with me. So he, he, he uh, was the uh, head of development at um, RTG. Um, he's now working at a completely different company. Um, yes, so Will has now gone on to be the metada metadata manager at the UCL Institute of Education here in the UK. When, when Will and I worked together, I think Will was, I think I was in my mid-20s, Will was in his early 20s, and I was, I was, and I still am, incredibly always taken aback by how intelligent he is. And again, again, just he's so down to earth and humble, and gets stuff. He just gets stuff done, and he's got tons of really good ideas. Um, and it'd be quite funny actually because you know him working on the software and technology side, I'd I'd call him up or or he'd you know be with me in in my flat at the time we'd work from the living room and I'd be like oh my god Will I have this really good idea why don't we do this this and this and could oh could we do this and then he'd just kind of look at me like I was crazy but then kind of go yeah let's let's have a look at that and and just have a real can do attitude um uh, and yeah I mean 
I mean, it's not even about his age. I mean, even if Will was 40, I'd still be astounded by his intelligence and knowledge and the, and the breadth of experience that he's already had. Um, and he does inspire me because, again, this is another person where I think, oh, I want to be a bit more like that. Um, so I hope that's answered the question. Um, there are other people in my life that inspire and influence me, but they're not related to the market research field. They're not related to maybe what I do for a living. Um, you know, and if I say that, oh, my husband has inspired and influenced me, you're all going to just roll your eyes and tell me how cheesy I am. Um, so I've probably spoken for well over an hour. Um, and once again, I haven't really spoken in any kind of detail about games and gamification, but I am going to do that much more consciously. Um, so, I mean, I remember in the first podcast, I was saying that, you know, I've not really outlined how these podcasts are going to be structured. I think I'm just, I'm just looking to find what structure works. So I think for next time, I'm going to focus on an area of games and gamification pertaining to market research. I will be taking a few questions. If uh, Although these questions so far have been wicked, um, if the questions could come forward with a more games and gamification focus, then that would be great because that would spur more discussion. Um, so happy to take questions hap and, and we'll be talking about games and gamification um, for podcast number three. Um, if any of you have listened to this and find it useful, please do get in touch and let me know. Um, if you've got questions and want them read out in the next podcast, again, get in touch. The email address is a bit of a long one. It's betty.adamu at researchthroughgaming.com. Um, so with that, thank you all very much for listening. Um, I hope that this is... Um, helped with some of those questions that were asked as well and look forward to doing a podcast next Friday with um, a focus on games and gamification and hopefully some questions from listeners on games and gamification as well. Thanks very much everybody, have a lovely weekend.